Once again, if you have joined us since the beginning of the service this morning, we extend greetings to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're delighted that you're here. If you're with us as a first-time visitor, we especially extend a warm welcome to you. You'll notice on page 15 of our bulletin a QR code that you can uh, open up your phone app and just hover over that QR code and a little form will pop up and you can fill out information um, about yourself. We'd love to be in touch with you just to know a name or a phone number or an email address. Um, promise we won't harass you. We'll just reach out, see if we can pray for you or serve you in any way. That's true for those of you who are joining us via live stream as well. You'll notice on the page where you are live streaming, there is an opportunity to fill out a visitor card. We'd love to know that you're worshiping with us um, distantly through live stream, and uh, we would love to get in touch with you and get to know you a little bit better as well. Now, we are in the midst of a series in Mark uh, where we have been working our way systematically, chapter by chapter, uh, through this glorious gospel. And we are in Mark chapter 7, and we are in verses 31 to 30 in uh, what will be uh, the, the second to last sermon in this particular chapter. Next week, we'll take some time uh, to look at a final miracle in this chapter. Uh, but here we see an incredible portrait of faith. An incredible portrait of faith. A woman in a desperate need for the Lord to work in her life, especially in the life of her daughter, comes to Jesus with um, a request, a cry for mercy. And he responds in a very unusual way, in a way we may even call offensive kind of way in this particular text. And what we're seeing here of the Lord is His wisdom. We're seeing His, uh, his uh, cleverness and caring for the souls of those who approach him with need. And we also see a very clever response of this woman in this text, an incredible faith, one of which he commends um, in the uh, parallel passage in uh, Matthew chapter 15. This text is told again in, in that section and told in a little fuller of a way. And so we'll refer to Matthew chapter 15 several times as we make our way uh, through this text together. Now let's turn our attention to it, Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, all the way to verse 30. This is God's Word. And from there he, that is Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, even as we acknowledge this word to be your word, 
that will stand forever. Not a jot nor a tittle of this word, but will be cut off or separated um, out. It will all be fulfilled. Lord, as we acknowledge that reality, even right now as we sit underneath the authority of this word, we, we know that our need in hearing it is significant. And right now we would ask that you would unstop our ears and you would open up our hearts to receive all that you would have for us from this, your word. Come and meet us now by the Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you got a chance to just take a look at my pastoral notes this morning, you will have realized that we are one month in, or excuse me, one year into what is our COVID disruption season as a congregation. Believe it or not, it was a year ago on March the 15th where we canceled services as a congregation, and uh, we were not prepared uh, for how to handle uh, that moment. And so we sent an at-home liturgy for you to worship at home, and we sent a video sermon of a church that I had preached at some time back. I don't think a sermon you'd ever heard from from me. And so we sent that out uh, to you and then busily got ready to makeshift a live stream online worship platform. And that happened by the next week, and we were live streaming, and even this morning continue uh, to live stream thanks to an incredible amount of service and ministry from so many of you and and, uh, God's provision of resources for all of these things. Very, very grateful. So this week, just as an Ebenezer, I went back and sort of looked over that first live stream service. We've come a long way since the first live stream uh, service. And uh, I looked back over the message that actually preached that morning. And I was like, I, I like this. I still believe these things. This is good. And I, I gave you even a quote from that, that message. And I thought, this is important stuff for us to hear now, one of the things that I, I bring that up, first of all, just to acknowledge that God is faithful. Um, we have come through a year of, of trial and challenge. Many of us in this room, whether facing the virus personally within our families, losing jobs or being furloughed, having financial crises, and then walking through all of the turmoil in our nation alongside those things and the challenges that that, that we faced as people, and to realize that here we are. God has been faithful. His gospel has continued to go forward. The, the church continues to advance, and we're grateful for the Holy Spirit's work in our midst. And yet, for a lot of us, it was a humbling year, wasn't it? It was humbling because we, we realized that some of the, the things that we tend to rely upon in this world get kind of knocked out from under us. We go into panic mode. And to realize that nothing ever changed eternally over the course of this last year. The things most important and essential haven't changed from March 15, 2020 to March 15, 2021. The same gospel that we have said is our foundation and our rock. The same Savior who intercedes at the right hand of the Father is there. The promises of the Word are just as yes and amen as they've ever been. And yet we freaked out, right? And it's appropriate to have natural human fear in the midst of the threats that were swirling around us. But there was a deeper kind of fear, a kind of fear in many cases where if we were truly honest with our souls and one another, we'd say it felt like our whole lives were caving in. And yet our life is hidden with Christ in God. 
Our life is hidden with Christ in God. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Nothing has changed in that regard. We need to hear that, don't we? I joked at the bottom of my pastoral notes, I needed to hear that this week. And then I said, who am I kidding? I need to hear that every week. There's not a day that doesn't go by where I don't need to hear those truths. In the midst of fear, you should always ask, your question, ask the question of yourself, what is it that I'm afraid of? And where has my faith gone? Where has it gone? Tony was making this point in the confession of sin earlier that when we're anxious and fearful, faith does not abide with that. that those two are incompatible. And so as we look at the Syrophoenician woman this morning, when we consider her faith displayed in the midst of an incredible crisis that would riddle her and us with fear, we see a beautiful portrait of what true faith in Christ is all about. I want you to consider this woman's situation. Notice there at the opening of the text in verse 24 that Jesus has traveled to Tyre and Sidon. This is just north of where the nation of Israel was situated at the time. So he's crossed over into Gentile territory. He's done so, we're told, in order to probably get some rest so that he might be hidden. He's in a house and yet he cannot hide. We're told immediately that when he shows up, this woman shows up. And notice her little daughter, that's the phrase that Mark gives to us, her little daughter is possessed by an unclean spirit. Now, nothing tugs at a mama's heart more than seeing the suffering of her, her young daughter or her young child. And so she hears of Jesus. Jesus, this one whose fame now goes before him wherever it is that he goes. She hears that he's in her hometown. She drops everything and runs to meet him. We're told that she falls on the ground before him prostrate and begs him. It's a strong word in the Greek. To cast the demon out of her daughter. It's a picture of a desperate need for help. Now if we were just reading along and you didn't know the story and we had not read this text. If we would gotten to this point in the narrative, you would have been poised to be able to say, Oh, it's going to be so good to see Jesus meet this woman in a spirit of kindness and mercy. Because we've seen a whole litany of those moments as we've been reading through the Gospel of Mark. And if we were at this point in the reading, say it was our first time to ever look at this text uh, ever, we would hardly expect what comes next. We would have thought that Jesus would have melted with compassion for this woman. And instead, he calls her a dog. Let the children be fed first, he says. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, one of my nicknames in high school was Nate Dog. That, that's, that's Nate Dog with two G's, mind you. It's of, the, it's of the Snoop Dog type of dog, you understand. And all of my friends on the baseball field would call me Nate Dog. Nate Dog's up to bat. You know, Nate Dog, bring in that run. You know, whatever. It was a fun, cool term of affection. Or, well, I thought it was. Um, maybe the joke's on me. But nevertheless, Nate Dog was one of my nicknames growing up. Now, I want you to know that when Jesus says dog in this passage, he doesn't mean it in that way. That's not what's going on in this text. This is not some 
fun, affectionate 21st century slang term that's being used. This is not a compliment from the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you in here, because you're dog lovers, you're like, well, you could be called a cat. That would be worse, right? That would be, that would be worse. But when you actually look over the nature of biblical revelation, how the terms are, are used, it would have been impossible for this woman to have derived any positive connotation from Jesus' reference to her as a dog. She didn't, for instance, have sweet sort of labradoodle photos flow through her mind. And she'd think, oh, he called me a dog. You know, she didn't do something like that. It registered to her as indeed a negative connotation. It's not unusual for dog references in the Scripture. And each time we see dog references with regards to people, um, it's, with re- it's a negative connotation. It usually means that this person is, at the very least, outside the covenant community of God. Those who were Gentiles, not Jews, were referred to by Jews on a regular basis as those who were dogs. Especially those with a kind of a religious, if I can say it this way, kind of a religious mutt background. Uh, syncretistic, maybe pulling from a number of traditions like Samaritans. They were very regularly referred to as dogs. Um, they didn't get everything right. They weren't of the right pedigree. They didn't live in the right places. They didn't do the right Things. And that's really the picture of this woman here. In fact, Mark has taken pains to tell us, right, in verse 26. This woman lives in Tyre and Sidon, Gentile territory. She is of Phoenician birth. She is a Gentile. And the problem she has is of a daughter with an unclean spirit. Could this be a more dog-like scenario? Jesus is calling, as it were, spiritually speaking, culturally speaking, in the first century in the ancient Near East, he's calling a spade a spade in this context. Now, for you to see that this negativity actually runs through the Scripture, and it's a part of what we see in the New Testament, just a couple of references here. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6 says, very similarly to this passage, Do not give what is holy to the dogs. You not give what is holy to the dog. Don't throw it, as he says here, don't throw the holy things to the dogs. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, look out for the dogs. And if you were like, well, maybe that was maybe that's not all bad. Look out for the evildoers. Oh, okay. So dogs are evildoers. He connects the two in Philippians 3. Even at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, when John is writing to us of the new heavens and the new earth, what he refers to or calls the new Jerusalem, he says, There are those who are blessed, whose robes are washed white, who have access to the tree of life, who enter the city gates, a reference to that new Jerusalem. And and then he says, Outside those gates are the dogs, the sorcerers. The sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who practices falsehood. There'd be no way for this woman to draw a connection with this word and think anything positively. Now, I do think it's important, however, to to note that Jesus uses a very unique word for dog in this passage. In fact, it's the only time in all of the New Testament that this word for dog is used 
It's used twice in this text, once from the lips of Jesus, and then also used from the lips of the woman when she rejoins Jesus' comment later. The only other time we find it is in Matthew chapter 15. And you said, well, I thought this was the only time. Well, Matthew 15 is the parallel story of this one. So the only other time is with this story. This story is the only use of the particular word of dog in all of the New Testament. So the typical word for dog is kuhan. Um, it usually refers to, and the references here that I've given to you, um, speak to those scavenger dogs that were very, very common in the ancient Near East. Uh, these are those mangy, wild, untamed dogs that get in your garbage, right? Those are the dogs that usually are being referred to here. They were all over the ancient uh, Near East. We're often threatening, uh, we're unclean. Uh, coming in contact with one almost always meant coming in contact with some disease. It, it, would be, it would be like a coyote for us, right? When I hear the coyote start howling behind my house at night, I think, oh my goodness, I don't want to get anything near that. Anything that sounds like that, I don't want to get anything near it, right? And it's scavengering kind of animal. That's what we have pictured by the language of kuon most often in the Scripture. But Jesus here uses the word canarion. Canarion, it's tied into the same etymology, but it's a different form of the word dog. And in fact, it's a diminutive form, meaning that it has the qualifier or the adjective of little next to it. There's probably a parallelism going on in the passage. We've just been told that her little daughter has a demon. And now he speaks to her that she is a little dog. And that's the reference that's here. There's likely a parallelism that Mark is pushing. But the more question is, well, what's that got to do with anything? This is like, the, you, know, you know, this is a Great Dane and, you know, th this is a poodle, you know, or, you know, a miniature poodle. Wait, is that the difference? No, it actually has the language of being a domesticated dog. This is the language you would use for, so we have a multi-zoo at, at, at the house. Our little Bailey is a canarion, Right? Not the coyote that's outside, it's the canarion. That, that's, what, that's what is being referred to here, a domesticated animal. Now that, that actually makes sense when you realize later he speaks of the dog being under a table. You wouldn't have a scavenger dog running around while you're eating at a table, right? You'd have a domesticated dog that, that would be there. That's how it works at my house. Dogs underneath the table eating everything that we drop onto the floor. Now, I tend to agree with most of the commentators that this, because this is such a unique word for a dog and it's not used anywhere else in the Scripture, that Jesus is making a distinction between a scavenger dog and a domesticated dog. But here, let's not lose this point. I think I was listening actually to a sermon by Kevin DeYoung on this point. I think he was very helpful. And he actually said, let's not lose the point. He calls her a dog. Okay, right? Okay, we're like, see, it's not so bad. He's talking about a domesticated animal. How would you feel being called a domesticated animal? It's still a dog. It softens the blow a little bit. Okay, you're, you're a pet dog. You're still a dog. Right? That should be the takeaway from the text. In fact, the real separation that Jesus wants to push in the text, as you can tell, is the separation between children and dog. Notice that's really what the parable is all about. Look there at verse 27. Let the children eat first. It's not really between the dogs, types of dogs. It's about the children. The children eat first. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. 
That's the point that Jesus is driving home here. You're not one of the children. You're a dog. You're a pet dog, but you're still a dog. And so there's a sting that's part of what Jesus' communication is here. Now, why did Jesus say this? What is he, what is he getting at? And I'd like to argue that he's, he's first getting at a very important theological principle in the Scripture, and we might even say in redemptive history. That is the unfolding of the Scriptures from Old Testament to New Testament. Now, this woman is living in Tyre and Sidon, Gentile territory, She, however, is familiar with the religious beliefs and customs of Israel. How do we know that? Well, I'm stealing from Matthew 15 on this. You see, when she first came to Jesus, we're told in Matthew 15, same story, she cried out saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now listen, you got to know something about Old Testament history to use the language Son of David. You've got to be aware of at least the fact that David's the greatest king of Israel. It's the golden age of the people of Israel. You've also got to know that prophetically, the restoration of Israel is going to come through the Davidic line and that the people of Israel are looking to a son of David who will be their savior and redeemer. She has put enough together to recognize that this guy does miracles. This guy teaches in, with authority that's not like the scribes and the Pharisees. This man claims to be Messiah. She's picking up a messianic title when she says that. Son of David, have mercy on me. So she knows that he is a Jewish man, a Jewish Messiah, who has come as the hope of Israel. She knows that. Son of David, have mercy upon me. Now, I think it's likely that Jesus here actually picks up her title, Son of David, and says to her, you're right. That's exactly who I am. You got me. I am the Son of David. I have come, as he will say in Matthew 15, I have come for the lost sheep of Israel. That's who I've come for. And if I've come for the right, for the lost sheep of Israel... It's not right that I would give Israel's bread, my children's bread, the covenant people of God. It's not right that I would give them the bread that's for them and throw it to the Gentiles. That the priority in my mission is the people of Israel. The priority in my mission is the people of Israel. Now, when you look at Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, that becomes even more clear because this woman has been crying after Jesus and his first statement to her is, I've come for the lost sheep of Israel. As if to say, I haven't come for you. I've come for others. I've come for my people. I've come as the fulfillment of the covenant promises to the Jews. I've come for the lost sheep of Israel. It's as if he's saying to her in his initial response, back off. I've not come for your type. We get the sense here that Jesus is expressing what is the priority of his mission. That he has first come for Israel and not for the Gentiles. Now, When you look at the New Testament, you see this spelled out perfectly. Look at Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, a passage that a number of you are familiar with. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, 
and also to the Greeks. First, now if you'll notice our text, Jesus uses the same language. Verse 27, let the children be fed first. He's not saying no one else is going to be fed. He's saying let's let the children who I have come for first, the priority of my people in whom the covenant promises have been given. Woman, it's not yet time for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. I'm here to seek out the lost sheep of the people of Israel. I have come for them first. There is a priority in redemptive history that every time the Apostle Paul, if you'll remember in the gospel, or excuse me, in the, in the writings of Luke in the, the book of Acts, is planting churches. Do you remember where he goes first? Always to the synagogues. Always to the temples to preach the gospel of the Jews. And what would happen? The Jews would reject him. Where would he go? To the Gentiles. First to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. There's been a rhythm like that from Old to New Testament. And Jesus is saying here, woman, I've come for the Jews first. Now here's what's fascinating about this, this pushback from Jesus is the woman doesn't disagree with him. Doesn't disagree with him. I wish more commentators recognized this. Commentators are very offended by Jesus' actions here in Mark chapter 7. They're more offended than the woman seems to be in the text. Trying to make excuses for what Jesus is saying and what he's doing. Trying to make gymnastics over like softening the blow of what he's communicating. But the woman gets it. Her first words out of her mouth are, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. You are right. What is he right about? He's right about the priority of Israel over the Gentiles at this point in the unfolding of redemptive history. But what also is he right about? He's right about what he called her. She is outside the covenant of, of God, alien to the stranger, strangers to the covenant promises, alien to the commonwealth of Israel. She is one who is, as it were, outside Her condition is one of a dog. She is in a desperate condition. A Gentile, Syrophoenician, begging for her own daughter to have a demon cast out of her. This woman says, yes, Lord. Now, we may sit here and go, she needs some self-esteem classes, you know, right? She she needs to stand up for her dignity. She, She needs to recognize that she's a person made in the image of God. That's not the dialogue that's going on here in this text. You're importing a lot of 21st century sensibilities into Mark chapter 7 when when we very sensitively engage the kind of language that's here. That's not present as she's engaging here. She's acknowledging her humble estate and she's acknowledging the priority of the people of Israel over the Gentiles. Yes, Lord. But she doesn't stop there. I want you to see the cleverness and the wisdom and the faith of this woman's response. And in fact, any of you are lovers of language or argument, you're going to love what it is that she says here. Notice Notice her response there in verse 28. Yes, Lord, I hear you. You're right. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Even the dogs, even the likes of people like me, Eat the crumbs off the floor from the children's meal, from the bread that they've eaten. Now listen, we said earlier that that 
that language of dog is a unique term of a domesticated uh, animal. I want you to know she uses that same word here. And she actually, if we can put it this way, uses Jesus' words and turns the table on him. She says, okay, I, I see you left me a little bit of wiggle room. You didn't call me a scavenger as if I didn't have any hope whatsoever. You called me at least a domesticated animal. And here's what I know about domesticated animals. They get to run around underneath the table when the people are eating. They at least get inside the house. And most people consider them, quote unquote, a part of the extended family, those domesticated animals. And if I'm one of those, don't I at least get some crumbs that I can lick up off the floor from the children's bread. I understand they need to eat first. I understand this is rightfully their bread. And I am one of the dogs, but you're telling me I got a chance of being a part of the house. That's her, that's her response. Her response is not offense. Her response is faith and hope. She reframes the entire dialogue and she gives us a beautiful picture of what a feisty, faith-filled, humble, embracing of the Lord Jesus Christ looks like in the dynamic with feet on the ground in a difficult situation. Jesus, in the Matthew text, Matthew chapter 15, when she speaks these words to him, he says, Woman, you have great faith. Very rarely do we ever hear Jesus commend anybody's faith. He commends this one. When she responds in this way, he loved it. Woman, you have great faith. Now, if that's Jesus' words in, in, in Matthew 15... What is it that makes her faith great? All right, I want to give three qualities of what I think we see in this text that speak to her about her great faith, and then I want to draw one conclusion before we're done. I want you to see this point number one of the portrait of great faith that arises from this woman. The quality of her faith, number one, is humility. She is a humble woman of faith. She received from the Lord hard words concerning herself. She didn't try to defend herself. She didn't try to explain the comment. She wasn't even offended, at least by reference to the Scriptures in the text. It kind of reminds me of Matthew eleven six, 6, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who are not offended by me. <laughs> Blessed are those who can hear my words and know that I put them on their heels and still move towards me. That's this woman here. She receives the truth about herself, the priority of other people over herself, the condition and the estate that she's in, and she lets Jesus' strong, true, hard words not run her off but soften her and move her towards him. That's a humble faith. That's why I, in some ways, joke, I wish the commentators could watch her more than get offended by Jesus' words because... To soften Jesus' words is to miss the point in this text. And to miss the test of Jesus in this text. What's he doing? He's teasing out this woman's, this woman's faith. Where does she really stand? Is she willing, as it were, for me to push back a little bit? And does she stick? Does she stay? Not only does she stick and stay, she pushes back. She pushes back in this text. You see, that leads to the second quality of her faith. It's not just humble. Notice it's bold. It's daring. 
her humility is not some weak, milk-toast, namby-pamby humility. <laughs> it's not some sort of roll over like a dog, one she has been pushed back against with regards to Jesus. No, she presses in harder. As I mentioned earlier, she takes the little wiggle room <laughs> you know, that, he, that he gives her, and he, she goes, she tries to drive a, a truck of mercy through it. She says, based on your own words, you mean, I could potentially get crumbs from the table. And it's as if Jesus goes, it's pretty good. I hadn't seen faith like this. You have great faith, woman. You have great faith. You know what she's doing here in this text? When you really begin to understand, it's what we ought to be doing in our Bible reading and prayer over and over again to nurture our faith. She's taking Jesus' own words. And she's serving them back to him with hope and promise. She's taking his own words. These were the words you used to describe me. And based upon the words that you described me, I give them back to you with a plea for continual mercy. This woman is bold, even daring in her faith. You see, we all often feel this kind of freedom in our relationship with the Lord where in a very real sense she's arguing a bit with the Lord in the most holiest of ways. Not not in a way where she is disrespectful to the Lord but in a way that she recognizes him as Lord and son of David. She's humble. She knows her place before him but then she's taking his words seriously and saying, Lord, based upon what you have shared and what I know about your promises, I give this back to you and I ask again. It's a bold move. M- many of us are not bold enough in our faith, in our engagement and relationship with the Lord. Sometimes we don't know his word well enough to be able to serve it as it were back to him. It's why our prayers sometimes are a little more than help me with this and fix that and make so and so get well. Rather than taking the story of Elijah in the midst of a, of a faithless situation and the difficult and overwhelming odds, and you say to God, listen, you are faithful to Elijah, and you dropped down fire from heaven and consumed the altar in the front of the prophets of Baal and showed your glory, and you say in James, if anyone prays like that, you'll answer their prayers. Lord, I give it back to you. That's a bold prayer. That's someone taking seriously God and His Word. She's a bold woman. Humble and strong all at the same time. The third thing I want you to see about her is she's persistent. She's persistent. One of the most remarkable characteristics of this woman is how undeterred she is (laughs) to getting her request answered. When you you really see this, if you go to the Matthew 15 passage, so please note that, and in your leisure, go back and look at it. But she's crying out, we're told, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. And initially it says, and Jesus was silent. Lord, Son of David, have mercy upon me. Woman, I have come for for the lost sheep of Israel. Lord, Son of David, have mercy upon me. Let the children eat first. It's not right that I would take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yet, Lord, even the dogs can eat crumbs from the table. Woman, I've not seen faith like that. See, that's how this happened. She's the persistent widow going back to the door and knocking. 
Until the judge, as it were, says, give the woman what she wants. In the previous, or in the other text in Matthew 15, the disciples say to Jesus, send her away. (laughs) Like, she's bothering us. And the whole time, Jesus is testing her with silence, with strong and even offensive but true language. And as he presses, she presses in. She presses in. She's persistent in her prayers. This woman doesn't give way. It reminded me of Genesis 32. You remember when Jacob is wrestling with the angel of the Lord at Peniel? He's wrestled all night long with the angel of the Lord, this, this shadowy figure. We don't know, you know what's going on, and it's this mysterious passage. And then dawn is about to come, and the figure's going to run away. And what does Jacob do? <laughs> he lays hold of him and says, I ain't letting you go unless you bless me. <laughs> and he blesses him. The prophets tell us in our prayers to give the Lord No rest. Give him no rest. Continue to speak to him. Now, for some of us, we're sitting, I don't want to be a bother to to the Lord. I don't want to just bug him all the time. I mean, that might make him mad. He might do something mean to me, you know, if I I do that. So I'm just going to be really humble, and and, uh, I'll mention it a couple times, but, you know, then if it it doesn't happen, then I'm just going to lay back. Throughout the scriptures when it comes to prayer, you know the most consistent instruction we get for prayer? Keep doing it. Ask, seek, knock. Keep doing it. He's got something in the designs of the persistence. Something in the designs of the ongoing. And in this passage, if this woman had just said, well, he called me a dog. Um, She kept listening. She knew who the son of David was. She knew the character. She knew the word. And she came to him over and over and over in faith. We see a woman who is humble, who is bold, who is persistent. But I want you to see fourthly and finally in conclusion. We see a woman whose faith we can never have unless we understand the object of her faith. The object of her faith. You see, that's the key of this passage. Maybe some of you at this point are saying to yourself, well, I'm going to pursue this kind of faith. Like tomorrow, I'm going to be humble, bold, and persistent uh, in my my prayers. And I'm I'm going to go work this up. Good luck. Because it actually doesn't come from you, this kind of faith. You can't just go get it, so to speak. No, you have to know where it comes from. And you know where it comes from? It comes not from your faith. It comes from the object of your faith. This is the way C.H. Spurgeon said it. Our life is found in looking unto Jesus, not in looking to our own faith. By faith, all things become possible to us, yet the power is not in the faith, but in the God whom the faith relies on. You see the difference? Son of David. She's coming to him. Son of David. I know that you're the Lord. I know that you have the power. And I've heard the story of the centurion and his servant who was suffering. And he's a Gentile. And he came to you. And you healed his servant. Listen, I know the story of the woman who had a flow of blood 
for many years. And she, like, we're hearing that story everywhere. And she just latched a hold of your, 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 your robe and she was instantly healed. She's a woman. Like, I, I, I remember the story that was told to me about you when you came across the shore and the garrison demoniac, who was naked and with chains, came screaming after you. And with one word, all of those demons were thrown into those pigs and the pigs went into the sea. It's the wildest story I've ever heard. But here's what I know about you. You, you healed a, a Gentile servant. You, you, you touched a woman who was unclean and in love and cared for her and extended to her mercy. And you have the power to cast out demons. I'm a Gentile. I'm a woman with a daughter who has an unclean spirit. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Do you see what she's doing? Humble, bold, persistent. Why? Because she knows who Jesus is. She knows what he can do and she knows his heart is a heart for mercy. You said let the children eat first. You are exactly right. And when it's time, us dogs are ready for the crumbs. Because I think she understands the importance of the bread. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's been a lot of bread over the last couple of chapters in the Gospel of Mark. Going back to Mark chapter 6, where the feeding of the 5,000 happened. And all of that bread that was taken up afterwards, the 12 basketfuls that the disciples carried with them. And then the last passage, the disciples are chomping down on that bread. And the Pharisees come and they see them eating that bread and they go, I can't believe that they eat with grimy, defiled hands. How in the world are your disciples not following the tradition of the elders? And that same bread, as it were, has been a part of the narrative. And here Jesus decides to tell a parable about bread, about hospitality, about welcome. Let the children's bread be for the children. It's not right to throw it to the dogs. And yet this woman says, if I can get the smallest morsel of that bread, that's all I need. Because a little bit of Jesus is all I need for eternity. Having a little bit of you is all I need for eternity. The object of her faith is so clear. She knows the bread of life. She knows who she is. And, he, and she, in a sense, is saying, you say there's a chance. You say there's a chance. Now, let me tell you, all of us sitting in this room are Syrophoenician women. I don't know if you've realized that yet. But we're all Gentiles. We're Tyre and Sidon folks. That's who we are in this text. And through the Jews, through Christ and his fulfillment of the covenant promises, the gospel is going to the nations, every kindred, tribe, and tongue. And that's you and me. That's you and me in this text. We are the dogs at the table who lick up the crumbs. And by our surprising astonishment, he starts using the word... Of child. He starts calling us children, sons and daughters, dogs who are licking up underneath the table. He starts saying, You're my child. All of my inheritance is yours. I'm going to treat you like you're one of the Jews. No, I'm gonna, better than this. I'm going to treat you with the love of my own son, Jesus Christ. That's who you are to me. Woman, by admitting that you're a dog, 
you ultimately in the fullest and richest sense become my daughter when you begin to realize the welcome of the glory of the gospel. So, so us Syrophoenician types, Tyre Sidon folks, there's probably not anyone within our realm of influence that we couldn't then extend the gospel to if we are the ones who are the outermost parts of the world. Because the gospel has come to the likes of even you and me. This becomes the picture of, of what our gospel mission is to be all about. Both in terms of love and to extension of the gospel. I challenge you, who is it that is your Syrophoenician woman with a demon-possessed child who's beyond the pale of hope? Because it's that person that Jesus has likely come to give mercy to. The likes of you and me. We have, a, we have greatly sinned, haven't we? We are dogs underneath the table. But we have a Savior who has reserved a place for us at the table. And he has given us himself to enjoy at the table, even the supper itself. In a moment from now, we're going to take little crumbs, as it were, into our mouths. And you know what it's going to be? All we need. All we need. God has provided. And we are the beneficiaries. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Father in heaven, would you burn, as it were, these truths into our hearts and our minds right now? Strengthen us in the life of the gospel. Would you even now, Lord, as we take up the prayers of the people and weave, as it were, the story of this gospel into our own hearts and lives, would you now hear us as we pray? Father God, you adorn the humble with salvation and lead them in what is right. You teach the humble your ways. May we ask, seek, and knock with persistence. For we know that everyone who also asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Father God, listen to the prayers of your people. Lord, hear our prayer. Holy Jesus, you came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. You emptied yourself and took on the form of a servant, not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped. May we be like the persistent widow, always praying and not losing heart, for we know you will bring your justice to your people. Lord Jesus, listen to the prayers of your people. Lord, hear our prayer. And Holy Spirit, weave humility into our hearts, that we might do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility we would count others more significant than ourselves. May we walk in genuine faith so that our faith and hope may be in the Lord God. Holy Spirit, listen to the prayers of your people. Lord, hear our prayer.